We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. I think it's part of something I, I, I chew or I play with too in the writing itself because it's so easy for me to take something to the grimmest angle without really working it. I can just see it and there it is. So I, I sometimes have to step back and go, right, but is that me or is that the story? leaning in that direction there and what else is going on sometimes things end up in a very funny or weird fashion there's a scene i wrote a while back where characters are fishing for the first time and one of them hands to uh one of the narrators connor his choice or offers him a choice piece of the fish and as the youngest of seven kids he never gets the choice of anything so this very simple act of okay which do you want he's so disconnected from that he has no he's got old cold tater syndrome yeah it's it's a weird, sad, funny moment, but it worked, and it wasn't something I had ever really planned for. I just saw them fishing, played with the specifics of the truths in that scene, and when yeah, if he's the youngest of seven and the smallest of them, et cetera, you don't get the choice bits, and here he does, and what's he going to do when he does? And it was kind of a funny scene, too, not in the ha-ha, say, but a surprising fashion. And I wonder if little Jimmy Dickens is on Spotify. Probably is. It's part of why you do these exercises where you take big truths or you take little truths and start to tease out from either end on them to see what else follows, because those are the things you rely upon in a given moment to give depth, to give real depth and heart to us, to a scene, to a story, to a beat. I don't think old cold tater syndrome is going to make sense to your listeners unless they have my weirdly specific knowledge of like 50s novelty country acts. But that's okay. <laughs> We've done demographic studies, and at least 45% of our listeners are related to you. Oh, wow. That's impressive. <laughs> I didn't think I had that many relatives. <laughs> I left that one on the door. Where were we before we went on this tangent? I had just started a new page on that new of the whiteboard. On that whiteboard, I wrote uh, what we had left off on, basically. Ah, yes. The reasons why they try to escape the world they're on and why that. And why. And it, it seems like it's going to be sort of a. Um, overarching theme for these guys basically that eventually culminates in whoops that was a bad idea well i think it, it does explain in part the increasing expansionism and tithing etc from satellite nations that it okay so tithing all right yeah tithing hits a synapse presumably then the the regional governor Colduns are going to receive coins based on contributions right which is gonna if there's not a Civil currency, as you were, as you will, right, necessarily be in good form, right. I think the, the whole point of not having a secondary currency is that everybody must be committed to the greatest work, which is the empire, and that there's no escaping that. Which is why I think when you twist that whole great enterprise toward the ascension and escape by the few, essentially, yeah. So this is a very Bronze Age mentality, by the way. Yes like extremely Bronze Age mentality, with one exception, which is the Inca, who also thought that way. A big part of the Inca empire was, you will deliver us X number of these things annually <laughs> to everybody. 
a big part of a lot of Bronze Age empires is really similar. <laughs> like a lot of those letters I was talking about are like the city of Tyre will deliver, you know, two dozen blue glass ingots. <laughs> and then if you don't, right, the army shows up is basically the outcome there. I think on the most basic level, the tithe probably started with a combination of resources, but also those who drink too much and are too full of fire because they're not bound to a given region. They're everywhere. And the, as the empire would argue, the ones best able to make use and understand them are here in our control. So you give them to us. We make them be what they're supposed to be. We will make them useful. Yeah, we'll make them useful. You will not suffer the harms of what happens when they are left to themselves. Yeah, they're pitching what amounts to a win-win situation, but I'm not sure everybody sees it that way. Oh, obviously not, because if you get down to the the particulars of the code and showing up, even if they're just the local code instead of a report that, by the way, we've decided or discovered, you know, three of your progeny are to be taken for X, Y, Z reasons, and one disappears, two you hear letters from, and then you get a knock, your neighbor gets a knock on a door five years later. Not everyone's going to appreciate the contribution they've given to the empire that they don't see any benefit or feel outweighs what they've lost. So there's going to be a building resentment, particularly as other populations or cultures fall under the sway of the Imperium. Well, and it's also going to vary, vary probably by who's in charge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've created a very vertical system and clearly the final emperor is the one who wants to build a space rocket. So he's only going to be giving out currency for space rocket parts or space rocket research and so on. Right, which has to be kind of expanded upon before it reaches the population on the right whole. it's like the end game of a 4x game where suddenly your entire empire gets completely retooled to accomplish your victory condition mm-hmm. as fast as humanly possible like that's what these people are experiencing but from ground level so there, there'll be higher demands for certain resources or minerals etc digging into old ruins of things that weren't as i think the demand will be about the same but the supply of things that aren't directly related to building a space rocket will decline drastically yeah and i think the, the directionality of goods becomes more concentrated too you will yeah more of it goes toward the the regions of, sust- of sustaining the workforce and the architecture of the ship itself than had in the past and stuff that used to flow back so there's a pretty easy possibility of things like famines anywhere that is not directly you know contributing to the rocket effort Mm -hmm. and things like that that you could use as part of sort of preamble of the fall i know one of the yeah one of the nations northern or and adjacent to the imperium which nominally has its own head of state and government etc but still beholden to agriculture is a huge part of their national identity and output and production so yeah they would definitely have a a vein of resistance among them because that's our that's who we are and what we do that is being usurped by your totally insane grandiose vision but your golden apples of the sun mythos we're going to live forever by let's just be legends we're going to live forever in space and be somewhere else we're going to abandon what we've the mess we've made let me bounce this to dex because i i know your inclination is to not make villains of any of the characters what's the messaging what's the what is the language back to the people about this that's a good question, and what comes first to mind is lies, propaganda, <laughs> and obviously I, I should think of what those lies would be, but... Um, I invite everybody to check the recorded on date of the episode to contextualize why that might be the first thing he thought of. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's the most I want to say about that right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, me, let me frame this. 
we're talking about the message. It comes from higher up and basically uh, justifies to the people who are being asked to deliver things that they don't want to produce because it it interferes with their livelihood. And we're, we're trying to figure out what is the message that they're receiving, that, that is being given to them to accept this interference and to keep sending the cogs, keep sending the MacGuffins. Right. Because obviously for the devout, the, we're going to go up to the sky and speak to the, the big God of judgment who gives life to earth and either get what we need for eternal existence or other big promise from that or, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get a means to leave this place we screwed up. We're gonna get a get a promise, a swear, an oath, a fealty, or whatever it is that. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't even matter. They they already believe they're 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 going to already contribute, and they believe that other people should. We're talking about uh, the common man at the outskirts who doesn't believe and who doesn't want to produce these things. Who's giving the same amount, but it's not going to the same places. I will point out that there's going to be a, uh, a subset, let's call it, of the people who should think this is really important, who think it's a terrible idea. Right, because while it might seem like a valuable thing, it's making a mess out of everything that does matter to them. Right. And uh, it might seem like, you know, it'd be great if we could accomplish this. But on the other hand... Famines, droughts... Right, there's yeah. going to be somebody who asks, what if this goes wrong, too, and, and doubts for that reason. Or what if the cost is too high right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd already pretty well covered that view, I thought. But yes, th- th- those are going to be the, yeah. I do think you, you definitely get some potentates, probably even more so toward the borders, who are more reliant upon that interaction and and as function as trade hubs. I think we go religion. I think the messaging tries to ply on people's fear of the unknown and the fear of what comes after they pass on. Okay, so let's let me give you this. In the conflict that led to one god being all, having crashed to the ground and the primordial sea, we'll call it, leaking out of his mind that those are dream too much, fishing, etc., the god of the sun is basically nailed into the heavens. And when I say nailed, I mean nails ripped out of fingers into the heavens. Those nails, as we'll call them, have been falling down. So whatever keeps the god of the sun up there and not doing whatever else it would want to do to us have been coming down. So instead of faith, fear. We have to, or this is the end. Yeah, I mean, we, we can draw direct parallels to, um, again, you know, timestamp, but, you know, timestamp for the last decade or two, climate crisis. Right. Effectively, we are, you, you might have actual natural climatic issues if the sun is just, if the sun itself is just shifting proximity, position, et cetera, et cetera intensity, and that's triggering already droughts, famines, floods, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, that can be taken as a sign of, oh, we're about to be judged. We have to go and deliver the tithe of tithes to, to stymie this, or we have to, you know, put the nails back in or something like that. We have to fix this. That becomes one framework, I suppose, for addressing why this is a necessity, despite the immediate cost it inflicts upon people. You have to somehow get over the curve of the curve of resistance of this farmer out here is just living his life and he doesn't see all this stuff. You have to be able to uh, make this terrifying enough for him. Speaking to the now, if the crater is not in your backyard, is there really a crater? Exactly. Maybe he's heard about it, seen images or recordings or whatever other technologies used to capture, 
you know, they definitely heard about stuff coming from the sky, but it ain't here. Mm-hmm. So why am I giving to those folks who I don't really care about anyway? You know, I think it does pull at the seams of commonality that the empire tried to weave together mm-hmm. because the beneficiaries of the resources coming in are going to become more apparent as this greater projects and I'm losing words, but the folks who do move the goods, who traffic, who redistribute, et cetera, as we've seen with the pandemic, the shipping magnates are going to make a fortune just by the moving and protection and distribution of goods to where they have to be to ensure we appease the sun god, even if they're doing it for reasons of faith. Well, but are they? That's the question I'm playing with here because of the way the currency works. That would be a great work, wouldn't it? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the question becomes who gets, maybe that becomes an argument itself of who gets to determine which of these actions are great works. Well, and also who who gets paid at that point? We're back to that question again, right? Because sure, I mean, the merchant moved all the stuff, but somebody told him to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, this comes back around to, to Ken's comment that we're building an autocracy from the top down. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I feel like I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit. I feel like it becomes less important to convince the farmer and the, the, uh, of the, the crater in his backyard or not in his backyard and more important to convince his local authority that it's in his best interest for the farmer to believe that there's a crater that's not visible to him or at least to act as if it's there. And so we've got this martial law, militaristic, uh, very perhaps draconian structure and lifestyle all the way down. Sure. And you would have had the Maitreya of that time give his big speech announcing all this. We must all be united behind, yada, yada. Yeah. Out of the cradle, endlessly rocking, soon man will fly, yada, yada. Yeah, no, I, I think, and that's sort of what I was getting at in terms of, does the merchant get paid? <laughs> Question. I don't think they do. I think they get told they better get it there or fucking else. Uh, I'm, I'm in agreement there. And so I think what that does there is it starts people pulling at the question of what a great work truly is if the check mark or X on the ledger is so easily, is so mutable, right? Yeah. I, my guess is that ultimately the result of this is that the Maitreya's favorite governors, favorite Coldens are going to be the guys who he thinks are contributing most to the project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there is going to be a lot of very shady accounting to make individual coldens look good. Which is going to ripple out toward poor management and loss of things that are being shipped over that were... Right. There will be a lot of, we know we can do this, but, uh, you know, I did. (laughs) It was me. And part of that might even be simply that I need more followers to pay the people in my community. So if that requires me putting some zeros here and there, Right. There's also going to be like at least one cold in who gets left out in the cold on this because they're working on something they think is important that isn't going to space. Entirely unrelated. Right. Like, you know, say the guy who has decided that he needs to go ahead and build a bunch of dams because of the flooding, who isn't getting paid <laughs> as a result of it not directly contributing to going to space. That guy's going to be furious. So you do end up, I think, with this greater tension in building with this allegedly impending doom, et cetera. The empire fractures. All the seams are too apparent. The people who are already discontent are already discontent with. Right. I mean, and probably, probably, you know, the stuffing is showing, as it were, well before they even launch whatever their 
vehicle to the sun is going to be. But when the vehicle doesn't come back or has a bad outcome, it's done. Like, it's over. The way it's written in the book on the launch day or toward the launch day is when the resistance reaches the launch site and, and sabotages it. Okay. I mean, that that can work. But, I mean, a bad outcome is just going to completely fracture this place. Yeah, it's the capital city's a mess because the the launch didn't launch fully. It It's at this point in our discussion where I also turn towards the uh, two full of fire people sure. becoming weaponized at this point oh, by, yeah. both, by both sides certainly yeah yeah, yeah. internally yeah yeah, yeah. you know the, you've got this this uh part of the city it's it's really a village but you know because of the way we spread out wide here uh uh this part of the city that the governor is just trying to fix the wells so that the people aren't drinking water poisoned by the nearby swamp and instead of being commended for trying to bring up the health of his people so that they can continue to contribute uh you've got these uh these weapons these weaponized people coming out and starting to burn the place this is what happens i think in part too it's a protest as we saw with the buddhist monks who had in the streets burned themselves against the authoritarian as a statement against the authoritarian government oh do you think some of the people with the too full of fire uh rebel themselves or are they kept in line I think the bet there is that if any of them do, it's trainees, not the ones mm. that are established. Because in all likelihood, the Empire is having to effectively to, to pull and draw more sooner from whatever training they're supposed to undergo to contribute. So you have... Training fire risk. <laughs> it's You have more calling occurring. You have people who are not, who haven't gone through the mental and physical rigors to not be so willing to self-combust or harm others. Mm-hmm. Or even so prone to. Yeah, instead of 15 to 20 years to to grow a properly conditioned fire person, now they're cutting back to 15 I can have it done kids. for you in seven, Maitreya. No well, problem. I'm not, I'm not even thinking of seven years of training. I'm thinking 15 years old, and uh, here's one year of training. Uh, instead of what they used to get, you know, they'd, they'd be inducted at 16 or maybe, you know, whenever they start showing their powers and get 10 years of training. That probably works. With my villainous focus, I'm definitely thinking that at least one Colden is saying something like what I just said to the Emperor. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, you meant seven years old. <laughs> yeah. yes. oh, I can have him ready for you in seven years. No problem. <laughs> Hang on, though. I misunderstood. That. I, well, yeah. Ken, I, I still think, don't know the depths of your villainous. But I, I think I think it'll the, be fine. <laughs> to Dex's point there, I think the, if we're looking at the Matreya and getting to the question of whether this last Matreya is, is villainous or not, there's that question of, do the harms I'm inflicting outweigh the harm I'm trying to avoid? I'm going to say something that may yeah. make me a little unpopular if you have any right-wing listeners, which I doubt. <laughs> <laughs> we might have a couple left. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the last Maitreya looks a lot like George Bush. He is really sure this is a good idea. And a bunch of very bad men who may perhaps, maybe perhaps he inherited from the former Maitreya, who might have, you know, had a better idea what was going on in the world, say, hypothetically speaking, certainly not trying to draw a distinction between his dad and uh, the President Bush. Most of you probably thought I meant, which is the one I meant. Mm -hmm. This guy's this guy. This guy is not fit to run a fucking candy store, but he's become president or he's become Maitreya and a bunch of very bad men who are doing things like telling him, yeah, I can have them ready at, se at seven. No problem. Or sure, I can work these people harder. No problem. 
right, are uh, pulling his strings. I think that's probably ultimately what the most sensical explanation for what's going on here. This guy genuinely thinks it's a good idea to go try to fix the sun, but he's a moron. <laughs> and I'll offer a, a an alternate take from my side of the table. I I would more favor the uh, the sweating, uh, grief stricken, uh, worries worrying Maitreya that is legitimately trying to fix all these things. Who wants to be a good person? Who wants to be hailed as a good person? And is beset is internally conflicted by all the terrible things that he recognizes as ha- as were terrible, and he agonized for days before finally saying, yes, go burn that village. We need those people working. I don't think he even asked the question. <laughs> I think he's so focused on his vision that like, if a village gets burned, nobody ever tells him about it. They just bring in whatever they burn the village for. I'm enjoying this because it's illustrative of what the people in the, in the empire themselves would be saying of him. Because they're not, they're not going to see him except for those few public appearances. Right. He's not going to be coming out basically ever. I mean, how big is this dude's head if he's the emperor? Yeah. So he's made his proclamations. He's probably been cautioned for many reasons against more public appearances that aren't filtered or relayed somehow. Right. And, Some of them even legitimate. Yeah. And the, the stories that spin out around who he actually is and what he's been doing and why he's doing this, in the absence of that greater control, because if you've got your, your code in the the administrative trivia dedicated to making this whole thing work, all the power and time they put to getting the narrative straight is going to fall to the side of it. And it will also be, chances are nobody, including in your narrative, is actually going to know this guy face to face. Very few people. Have it would be an extraordinarily isolating position. And I don't think he's really meant to be like a big part of your narrative from what I'm aware of. No, he, he was he was effectively a street urchin that passed the tests. So, so you genuinely might get Right. A lot of competing narratives of how bad or good a guy he was like throughout the book as people try to, you know, or throughout a book as people try to wrestle with, you know, this colossal mistake that the guy clearly there made. There is a set of short stories that's told about him called The Three Deaths. And it is the three times he effectively died as a person. The first time, of course, was when he was selected as the Maitreya and then learned what that meant. The second was when he had to make this announcement. And the third is when he gets murdered. When he gets blown up on his base rocket. Because... <laughs> I mean, let's talk about inevitabilities. Right. Poor guy. Jay, let me ask you a slightly tangential storytelling question. With what Ken and I have both just posited, two very different competing views of this character, is it more interesting, do you think, uh, as a storyteller and as a uh, consumer of that story, for this very important character to be shrouded in mystery for the narrator to never actually reveal uh, what kind of person he is, uh, what his words were, what his intentions were, and leave it all as those competing Unequivocal stories. yes from me, by the way. But we're asking Jared. Yes. <laughs> the, the, way, the way those three deaths of Ryojin Maitreya occur in the story or are told about in the story is by a coden. This is a long time after the collapse of the Imperium and the Kodani have mostly retreated to the very old villages they used to run where they try to train those they can find too full of fire and to dream too much to not be terrifying monsters that make humanity's life insufferable. And one of the he has only one youth full of fire in the entire village. There's only one left they they could find that they've raised. And it's a rite of passage and one of the things he requests is a story be told. 
in this case, the three deaths of Ryojin. So the Coden shares two of those deaths. The third piece of that gets shared later. But it's the weirdness here is that the Coden sharing these stories seems to tell, talk about the Maitreya like he knows the fellow too well. Either the story's been told so many times that Maitreya becomes a character that's very detailed, or he knew the Maitreya directly. It's unclear. But the picture he paints for the Maitreya is very detailed and comes across as someone who who cared for the person, but also betrayed him in the end. That, that's kind of the tonality of it. Of, well, so he's clearly going to tell Dex's version of the story. Yeah, like I... The, the narrative that Coden tells effectively is the eye of the story of the story that he shares. Raise this youth from obscurity because I thought he would be the next leader. We beat out all the other candidates at terrible price and so on and so on. And here are the decisions we made and why ultimately I had to betray him. So it is a the story is told, painted like Dex, but it's a very self-justifying narrative. I've rephrased my question to be more focused. Is it more interesting for the reader to question the competing views? or to be able to connect with a narrative truth about this character? I think to Ken's point about Amarok, the reader, the reader will make this decision regardless. I, I got to be honest, right? Every piece of textual evidence suggests that I am wrong about Amarok. <laughs> okay, as far, <laughs> as far as Final Fantasy goes. But I don't care. I hate the guy. I'm sure he's the bad guy. There, because th- that narrative, I think, is a great example. I'm, I'm going to try and not spoil anything about a very long and ongoing narrative. But the game as a collective experience has been going on for almost a decade now in the current form. And as the last I saw, 26 million subscribers. So there's not going to be any uniformity interpretations of those stories because 26 million people barely agree about everything. But I've read plenty of threads where people can experience one thing two very different ways, even though it's very clear which way the writers intended it to be read. And even when the writers themselves have said, no, this is what we meant by that character's actions. Right. Like, it's plain that you're supposed to like Emmerich and be relieved that he's in charge of Ishgard now, because Ishgard doesn't really come across as a particularly nice place when you first get there. I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a, a beat in one of the later narrative arcs where a character confesses why they've committed so deeply to working with you despite all the the hell this has resulted in. And it's unclear whether it's a a friendly confession or a romantic one. It could be read either way, and you will never find any consensus online about which it is. And both sides are willing to fire whatever armaments they have at each other about how stupid they are for reading it that way. And ultimately, it, it's irrelevant. It's your experiences through your character you've created of the story in this world that they've fashioned. So I, I, I will never, I, I will try never to, as a writer, tell a person who's read or experienced anything I've written, you are wrong for reading it that way. I will tell them that's not what I meant or what I was, what I saw, right? Because that's that's a truth I can. Or if we go back to Genshin Impact for a minute, there, there's the fact that you and I are both definitely in agreement that Baido and Nguyen are a couple, and there's no subtext there, right? There's almost no subtext there, but I'm sure somebody is out out there is going to hear that and go, "What? Are you kidding me?" So, <laughs> to give Dex some context, one is a bureaucrat of a nation, the other is a privateer pirate. And by sending the privateer pirate on the mission, part of the reward was payment in financial rewards. And the dress the bureaucrat wears, along with hint, hint, nod, nod, wink, wink, it's the rest of the reward. There's also some more to it than that, but that was the most blatant. Uh, like, that that was like, just in one moment of it. Right. 
at that point, it became impossible for me to doubt that somebody is writing them as a couple. But I could be wrong, and there's going to be somebody out there who thinks I am. So these are these are examples of a character who's uh, actually portrayed to the reader. However, I'm think I'm looking more at uh, an example uh, or a, the difference Where it's between only tertiary examples, only okay. tertiary information, never any reliable direct information right. in this written story versus. Uh, the the story actually watching this character agonize and describing this character agonize or describing this character be dumb and uh, you know right. So I'm going to go to a different source that I often reference when we are doing these, which is the Malazan Book of the Fallen series. One of the worst decisions that Erickson and Esselmont made in writing that is to actually let you know what Icarian, who is one of their many characters, is thinking on occasion. And he's another one of these, like, this dude really ought to be, uh, if, if not a blank slate, then something we don't explicitly get to know about. They try to present most of the information you get about him through the eyes of other characters. But every now and then it's clear what Icarian is thinking, and that's a mistake. I think what this gets into, and we will definitely need to do an episode on, is something I've encountered in books I've been reading to date. The, the challenge of subtext and either... and. On one level, the writer's not trusting and therefore stating explicitly what their read of the situation is, so that you, the reader, know what their read of the situation is. Or I got into discussing, sorry, but here's an easy one. I got into discussing the Inquisitor Eisenhorn series by Dan Abnett. It's a 40K series. And somebody was experiencing it for the first time, and they made an observation about Inquisitor Eisenhorn's character. And I said, that is definitely what the author intended you to think. In response, I think also that endeavor intersects with issues, and we definitely have to, to go into a full episode, which we will do on this, about questions of representation and the like, where you, some authors go as far as having a preface of, here are the cultures I derive these things from, here's what I do and don't know, so here are my lenses, to use one frame for that. There are reasons, I will say it, and there are multiple, to be as explicit as possible in the text. I think, Dex, what you're talking about, though, is when you have tertiary content only, when the character described is never by the reader seen or encountered directly, there's this whole realm of subtext that the world resulting from their actions has to speak to and that the reader derives an understanding of that person from. Often, this is something like we would say in, in biblical terms, right? We get testaments, testimonies. We get We get stories of stories of characters that we never actually have tell us anything about themselves. There are examples of Jesus. There's four Gospels. He doesn't come across the same in all four of them. It's something I have played with, too, because my book in itself is largely written in first person with other portions that are delved into third by other characters or are also first person, et cetera, but their journeys and so on that emerged as part of the story that wanted to be told. Some of it's epistolary. Some of it's just random thoughts or reflections as they're going through a moment. But the thing you have to, and I always advise my students of this, understand is that beyond a certain point, the work never exists or comes to life truly until someone else has it to experience. And you have utterly nothing to do ultimately with what that moment is like. You can presume and frame and structure and prime and set up for it on social. I can hire an illustrator to draw what I and they think the character is like. And someone else will still read what I describe and see something else. Of course. 
I think you have to come, there's a certain amount of trust implicit in the act where you have to believe that what you've done conveys enough and not be like Van Gogh and demand that you be wheeled back into the museum to fix a brushstroke on the page. <laughs> or George Lucas, for those of you who are from this. It's probably a better analogy for Yeah. <laughs> it's the people. same behavior. But right. It is the same behavior. It's No, no, that's not how I wanted it. No. <laughs> And, and I say this as someone who started this book series as a couple of short stories years ago, who last year sat down and went, I know I've done all this architecture about what the book could be, but what if I just made it a series of television shows instead? How many seasons would it have? Oh, Lord. Just as a pure, not that I'm going to, it was a thought <laughs> exercise to help me structure. And what it came down to was, okay, if I applied an entirely different framework to this narrative, what would the shape look like? Where would things begin and end? And out of that exercise became, well, I, I won't go too deeply because we did an episode 50, but to, to get to the point here, out of that inquiry came the realization that, okay, it would be no more than three seasons because there are three arcs. Here's the beginning. That, that thing could definitely be the end. It'll be at least six once the network guys get a hold of it. Oh, yeah. Th this is why I'm saying it's a thought exercise. This isn't, you know, when I pitched to Netflix, et cetera. This was a, a reflect. This was a. Well, if you pitch it to Netflix, they're going to cancel it after one season. So why worry? Uh, exactly. I'll take the money and work and then go to DreamWorks and have them animate it for four seasons that should have been five. The, re the reason I did is that my current framework of one book wasn't fitting, you know, my expectation of one book wasn't fitting the thing I was holding. It wasn't the right shape for it. So I said, okay, I don't know what the right shape is. Let me take another one, apply that, and see what shakes out. And out of that came the three smaller books that are much easier to write than the one big one and can be full, complete narratives in themselves. As I said to Dave, I lost one chapter in my earlier draft, and out of that came 14 shorter ones. Well, okay, so I'll go, I'll go to another thing that's been coming up lately. They made Dune into a TV series. And a movie. Is it both? Yeah, they finally made a Dune movie. Let's go with that, right? I remember talking to you about the Dune movie that you had right. many things to say. And the main, the main thing that I keep finding myself explaining to people, because I literally grew up with those books in my house as a kid, right? And I read them several times each is that I don't think any of the sequels are filmable. <laughs> All right. And sort of the corollary to that is that I'm pretty sure that Dune Messiah, which is the, fir set, the first sequel, which is a very short book by modern sci-fi standards and kind of even by the standards of when it was written, was really just meant to be the conclusion to Dune. And Frank Herbert cut it because he couldn't sell the book with it in there. There comes the point of, say, like J.K. Rowling, Beetle the Bard, where you tell too much where people clamor and say they want more of the content. And really, Beetle the Bard, I think, Dex, to your point, was best as a character who never existed on the page, as a reference, right, as a, as a thing of the world that helped define the world. But a book of Beetle the Bard's tales was never going to meet the expectations of what people envisioned that character to be. There, I mean, Ken, you and I grew up on like Forgotten Realms and a bunch of other sure. fantasy chaff that often would take the hoe here's that character from an adventure. Let's do a whole narrative on them. And it was usually disappointing because that character was not who you thought they could be. I'm going to say a thing that I don't think will be controversial. Go ahead. We were better off when R.A. Salvatore was just like literally writing fight scenes. Before he killed Chewbacca? Sure. Narrative arcs. No. Well, yes, but like I was thinking about it, you know, retrospectively, right? Yeah. And the first couple of Drift Orden books, and now some people probably groaned, but like I experienced those as they were coming out and I handed them to you shortly afterward. Didn't really have a lot of like romance and icky girl stuff and, you know, like great details about the politics of Menzo Baranzan and stuff like that. 
the crystal shard is a complicated but not like especially story about beating up you know a bad guy <laughs> ultimately in fact multiple bad guys but like and, and then the sequel the, the immediate couple of sequels really don't br- go don't stray that far away from that and then as salvatore probably thought he was growing as a writer and introduced more mature themes and things like that and explored Drizzt's internal you know emotional life and stuff like that the books got way worse and a lot sillier i think it does kind of bring us back to the point of there, there reaches a moment in world building. I think it's a fear any writer comes to of how much of this do I need to truly do? Because as I said, as Dave and I said in episode 50, one, it's not a one and done thing. You don't world build and walk away from it. You have to come back as you need to and discover more too. But there's also the question of how much of it truly belongs in what the folks who encountered as a, a story expressed in a medium, how much of it actually belongs in that moment you know, on the screen, on the page. Right. I got to be honest. I don't care what Drizzt's emotional life is. I want to hear about him cutting people up. All right. It, and, and you wanted a new Conan. Yeah. Well, I, actually, I wanted uh, I, I got to Drizzt before I got to Conan straight up. Um, so I think I think the appeal for you was the same in both. It's the same idea. Like, I want to read a story about somebody having an adventure. I don't want to read like a character study. At least, that you know, that's not what I'm going to fantasy literature for. You know, there you don't want David Foster Wallace fighting Mensa Baranza. I really don't want that. No, that would be horrible. <laughs> uh, th- that would be like genuinely frightening. Could you, you would imagine, learn a lot about spiders, but like still. infinite jest. <laughs> infinite spiders is definitely the title of David Foster Wallace's book about the drow. Hundred <laughs> percent. You know I'm right. <laughs> it's just spiders all the way down. Yeah, infinite spiders. You'd learn a lot about spiders. Oh, and the intricacy of webs and architecture and right. structure. Just yeah. all kinds of totally insane tangents about like mushroom flavors and um and torture. Right. Torture. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And why torture, you know, how he emotionally reacted to watching a Dwergar get skinned alive would probably be like 80 pages or so of the book. Like I, I like reading David Foster Wallace for the record, but like what he what he would do trying to write a fantasy, he would have done trying to write a fantasy novel would be an atrocity. I think I think it's something you'd want to experience once. Uh, no, no, I want to experience it zero times. I'm confident of this. But you see, that's my point here, that he would go in all the ways and things that weren't ultimately the story. And Wallace, of course, would argue that's incorrect. And those were all the story because that's those were all the story. And, you know, his emergent understanding of the subject and go to hell, David Foster Wallace. <laughs> that's not what I came to read a book about elves for. <laughs> You do have to, when you're writing, remove yourself, your fears and expectations from the story. So I know, Dex, I'm with you. Like, there are times when I write a character and I go, and I've, uh, you know, do is this moment too monstrous? There's a scene I wrote that'll be in book three, and it's a beat of cannibalism that's grotesque, and I didn't really enjoy writing. Because I might joke about it offhandedly, because sometimes it's a dark piece of humor that I enjoy, but it's not a scene I like writing about but it was also there and fit the story and it i figured rather ultimately than try to not be uncomfortable with it i left myself be uncomfortable and hopefully let the reader be too because there was no other way to tell that moment for me there are a small minority of authors who are really good at writing those moments and most of them beef it just as a fact i have an example in mind but i don't know that it's interesting to people well, it's, I, I should give to you this book, this book series by Ada Palmer, who takes the approach of I'm going to reconstruct all of human history based off of 
my presumptions from my philosophical background and training of how we're going to no, evolve. And no, then, no, no, don't give me that book. That, that, that well, here's the reason I bring it up. It, 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 it ultimately ends up pivoting around uh, Desaad and Desaad's core arguments. And the book itself spirals into this grotesquerie of flagellating you through descriptions while it explores philosophical precepts. <laughs> and I sat there, that was my reaction too of, can we, can we get back to the story? <laughs> the, the one author I will go on record who's saying is really good at writing that kind of thing is Brian Lumley. And he writes horror, so why are we surprised? But Brian Lumley, like when Brian Lumley decides to genuinely just take like a hard turn into trying to creep you out or be gross, succeeds every time. <laughs> I think our point here is we might start these exercises with premise, with truths, but fundamentally when it comes to the narrative itself, you have to go for the beating heart. Why do the readers care about what's happening on the page? I think you have to leave this guy in the background fundamentally, whatever we, we may think about him. he Because of his nature and the way he shaped the world that followed him, he's one, no longer there. He's quite explicitly no longer there. There's, there's a really long shadow, but you can't actually tell us much about the guy you cast it. I'm going to throw out my thoughts on that. Go ahead. I think it creates two completely types, different types of books. The having him in the shadows is much more of a feels to me much more like a a story about the culture and the politics and the world that's alive around him. Whereas showing him whether he's a good guy or a bad guy and his foibles and his mistakes, intentional or unintentional, is it's it's just a different type of book. I don't personally feel... I'll give you a narrative trick. You can do both. For instance, in that story of, of the code and talking about... The Deaths of the Maitreya. The Deaths of Maitreya. No, I, the writer, name of the, Patrick Rothfuss, he's very good at this. In fact, his whole book is structured like this. It's a guy being asked to tell the story about his life he never wanted to tell. So it's all first person as he's narrating his past, but third person when they're trying to wring it out of him. And clearly delineated. But in this instance, when the when the Coden is asked to tell about the three deaths of the Maitreya, you can frame it initially as the scene of him being asked and responding, and then shift from first to third, et cetera, from from scene break or paragraph break to paragraph break. You can shift into the actual narration of that scene, depicting the Maitreya and the people around him as they were visually, like on frame, we're transitioning to just him on the scene interacting. But it's the experience, the story being told, or you seeing here, is what the Coden is narrating to you. So you believe, you perceive what you're seeing as the truth, even though it is a story being told to you. So uh, fundamentally, what, what Dex is proposing is the difference between writing Dune and writing The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. In all honesty, Dune is a book about the protagonist. Protagonist. Okay. Like for real. Dune is about Paul Atreides, yes. <laughs> like in a very intimate, real way. Right. And how he became a space worm. No, not and how he became a space worm. <laughs> That's his son in God Emperor <laughs> of Dune, which is why you can't film it. But anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry if I have now like advanced spoiled God Emperor of Dune, if they somehow get that shit on film. But that's what happens. Y'all. You, you want to see Timothy Shalomot playing his clone as a, sp- clone as a space worm. Uh, y- you off-tracked Ken so bad. <laughs> anyway, okay, trying to pull back, right? 
Dude is, Dune is a novel about Paul Atreides. Paul Atreides is the main character. He takes over the fucking galaxy. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I probably just spoiled part two of Dune, but there you go. But the um, point is, we see Paul Atreides. We see right. him. We see him. We don't actually, we hear from Paul directly. We hear from the people around Paul, but fundamentally, it's, it's Paul's story. Okay. Yes. Okay. The Lord of the Rings should be Sauron's story. But instead, we're seeing all the politics and the culture and the people all around. What we're seeing is the consequences of Sauron's existence throughout all of Lord of the Rings, what what it did to Middle-earth. This is a perfect example framing my question. Thank you. Interestingly, from a I've read more books than most of you have, haha, perspective, if nothing else, okay? Really, it is not Sauron's story, but Morgoth's story, <laughs> okay? We're already in a weird reflection of a reflection situation by the time of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But the Sauron story makes much more sense, which I think is the reason that Tolkien started there. If you go to the Silmarillion, you'll hear you'll you'll get bits of the other one and it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> so Dex, to your point, the story as I tell it is two narrators, and one is very clearly one of those two full of fire, because it's one piece the character I began writing with, but more importantly. His understanding of the world and why it fits together the way it does is a pivotal anchor point to build everything else from. So narratively, it makes sense as does structurally. You empathize and are horrified by his actions, but you also see why. And I slowly peel back and show the world from another character's point of view and then bits and pieces beyond that. But you, you have to give an entry point to the readers that answers their fundamental questions of why from the start. It's why, for instance, Octavia Butler's Dawn has such a powerful beginning. You're a human being trapped in what is apparently some type of prison cell. Oh, God, it's on a ship. There are aliens. What's going on? You don't need much more of a setup than that because she starts asking questions. They give responses. And I think chapter two or three, and we discover humanity has been destroyed and she's a salvage operation. And the rest of the book is the insidious nature behind that. The, the aliens eventually show themselves, but they are largely a shadow at first. And the whole, oh, we blew up the Earth is just backdrop. You know, the aliens are currently terraforming and making it a rehabitable environment while we get you back to breeding population, yada, yada. And by the way, eventually it gets revealed that, oh, we need you to do this so that we can breed too, because it's how we replicate. And we genetically engineered you so you can do both, which means you're not really human anymore. Man. I'm over here dancing around spoilers. Jerry's just reading plot summaries off of Wikipedia. <laughs> now... I'm not familiar with whatever you're referencing. Uh, and I'm kind of, I'm, my brain is trying to link it to what we're doing here on the stream, but it sounds from Ken, like you may be reading off the plot summary of something that's already. He's probably not literally. He actually read it. He's telling you what he remembers, but that's my point. You know, right. like, no, there's, there's you, a big difference. You. When I tell you Lord of the Rings is a Sauron story, I'm leaving you some dots to connect, but it really is right. Oh, were you two just talking about the same no, he's talking about the book he was talking about before we got to that. Man, that would be a, a weird hybrid. I will send you. I would send you the. I'll send you the link because Octavia Butler is. She's famously known for, among other things, coming down hard on how sci-fi writers build universes and worlds. And correctly, by the way, because there has the encyclopedia school of fantasy has been in the ascendant for far too long. I I finished reading a four hundred page book recently. And I know a lot about Tauruses. That's good. But I don't know the world in which those Tauruses matter. The astrological sign or the geometric shape thing? The geometric shape on a space station. Okay. 
Yeah. Got it. The because the Neil Stevenson, as Ken and I have talked about, is probably the godfather of a lot of this. No, I mean Tolkien is, if it's if we're still on encyclopedia. Yeah, I, I meant in sci-fi, but yeah. Again, there is an there is an audience and an appeal for that. There's a there's a form as we were teasing about Wallace before, but there is there are many forms of stories that can be told. I the the Ken, the book I sent you to or I mentioned before with Silk Punk by Ken Liu is largely epic structure. The characters are incidental by and large. Right. And I want to be clear, folks, that my critique was not of that book, which I haven't read, but of how Jared described the core concept, which was ludicrous. I, I sent you his description of Silk Punk, didn't I? Yeah, you did. And that was ludicrous too. So you know, I have a critique here, clearly, but it's not of the book. I haven't read the book. It might be a really good book. The interesting endeavor he takes on the book is telling a, I cannot do justice to how he defines Silk Punk, so I will just put the link in the show notes. But Oh, yeah, let everybody experience that. that that's some stuff. Considering he's seen as the person who named it, I, it's best to let him speak for what he believes it is. But he rather than go the, he goes more the Tolkien route of, I'm going to share you, share the epic of this, conflict through a couple pivotal characters but mostly through whoever is the most interesting one to tell this beat about yeah i mean the arch subverter of that trend in fantasy for a long time was glenn cook yeah glenn cook was extremely content to tell you about a bunch of mercenaries wandering around trying to duck when these scary wizards with horrifying names threw fireballs at each other he wasn't always completely successful at it but it's 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 a real change of pace from how most authors would have approached that same situation Sure, because typically it would have been the wizard narrating. Or somebody who works for one of the wizards and has to learn about the other wizards in order to destabilize their evil plots. But like wizards in the Black Company series have names like the Howler, okay? And they're not good dudes. They're 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 the Eldritch horrors of the setting, effectively. Pretty much, yeah. Uh and ultimately, although you get kind of familiar with a couple of them, you really don't learn much about these guys except that they are really, really scary. So, Dex, to your point there, part of this whole exploration of the Empire answers the question of why there are so few full of fire who dream too much left. Yeah. Because enough survive, some survived the conflict that led to the death of the Empire, was cautioned without the infrastructure to rear them properly, they become whatever they become, and sometimes that is monstrous. So I don't want to use the word Dark Ages, but there followed a time where things horrible roamed the Earth and there was very little to stop them. And clearly, neither the Empire nor that was a good way to be long-term. There are very few left now, and that becomes backdrop for why, say, in a very far-off northern part of where the Empire used to be on a ma- in a valley in the mountains, you start the story with one character, as a 10-year-old who is too full of fire, who invite a coden into their house, and all the context that comes with that. That is very surface at first. He's a sage, a judge, whatever. But you unravel bit by bit what a coden means in this world and what it means even without knowing the depth of that to invite a judge of these into a home because fundamentally it's live or die and that onboarding by itself is going to like you know cast a pretty long shadow over the narrative but in a good way uh, or at least in a you know, a functional way Th- that's why fundamentally when i was rewriting the prologue i had to there's a moment of adam the 10 year old sitting giving dinner to this code and nick nikolai and it's a complicated meal because nick is trying to suss out are you a reasonable human being do i have to kill you i've got my weaponry sitting in a box under the table to do it i don't really feel like doing it but i can if i have what i came here to do but on the other hand (laughs) it's good stew you seem reasonable by the way your parents parents are fighting upstairs the whole time because i don't really know how you hide from the wife that you know by the way i invited the coden in to determine whether our children our child should live you know (laughs) 
maybe you just kind of do and hope she takes it okay. And of course she doesn't because who would? But they reached a point where they couldn't live the way they were. So he invites the code and he knew in and a decision has to get made and nothing stays the same. And that's really all the prologue is in the first few scenes. Okay. So I think we've established to go back to our main line here, right? That this is definitely a very top-down authoritarian empire, right? Which is going to vary greatly in character over time as different people become the person pulling the levers, right? I think that's fair. I, I think, I, I don't know, for instance, for how many Maitreya per se would have, but there's definitely an evolution. I, I certainly had the implicit assumption that it wasn't the same guy the whole time. Man, that would be... <laughs> that would be a whole other kind of empire, and now we're back to writing Sauron. But... Um, <laughs> Actually, no. Now, now we're back to God Emperor of Dune. That's where we're at yeah. at that point. But like, <laughs> then, you, then you have a then you have a spice eating space worm running it. Yeah, it, it's very clearly a succession. I don't know how many generations it runs because empires. It has to have run several. Yeah, because it doesn't make any sense if it didn't for it to be as important as it is to your story. My understanding is that by the time it collapsed, if not if it did not own the continent, quote unquote, it definitely had the run of it and. Some of that was force, some of that was faith, but there was there was sufficient of both, though that the Maitreya's way was the way without enough resistance. Right. I mean, I, I'm sure at some point they had a war with somebody because I mean, you pretty much have to, but that doesn't necessarily have to have had to be the only solution, like we were saying much earlier. Yeah, I, I think the northern region that was largely agricultural might have had conflicts, but they were deeply aligned in faith already. And considering that that northern region is where those old villages of those two full fire and dream too much were initially reared, this is kind of a combination of religious and deeply real politic reasons to be on good terms with them, to, to connect that legitimacy from we are continuing the heritage of way back when. Right. You almost get a sort of um, nostalgia. No, no. Uh, I'm thinking of the phenomenon where the Mughal dynasty is definitely a dynasty that's recognized by the Chinese, but at the same time, that's literally the Mongolian heirs of Genghis Khan running the place after he took it over. That kind of thing. Uh, actually, Mughal is the Indian term. Um, it's something else in China. But uh, there's a word for that sort of situation where there is a ruling cadre class of people that is not actually from around here. They're, they're just in charge now, and I can't. it's not coming to me. We will. I've had that. We will fish it out later. Yeah, but my point is that may be the situation that was imposed by the Maitreya on the empire initially, right? He's effectively um, from this agricultural region to the north, but now he's running things for these other guys. Yeah, the you know, funnily enough, where this whole endeavor started was with a box of cookies. I was describing three characters going down to this remnants of an underground inhabitant and habitation, clearly very old that had been lived in many times. And as they walk down toward the entrance, there's this biscuit tin that's partially worn off that just says Kutubisk on it. Clearly letters have been worn off or scratched off. And it's just the sign to the entrance. And as I dug into that, it was Kutuzov's Biscuvi. And then as I was on the walk teasing out, all right, it's a tin of biscuits. What does it look like? It became clear that's one of those kind of bucolic scenes with people frolicking and bags of, or, you know, like, the French equivalent would be carrying the baguette and whatever, but you know, people, true folk, celebrating everyday life on the tin as there's some, I threw out just as a mushroom cloud analogous in the background. It, it seemed to me like it was a war ration of some time that had been long ago that just kept on staying and people keep eating them. They haven't expired. It's the Yon dynasty in China. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. But there was a there was this moment of me going, how old is this tin of biscuits? And why is that sign there? Why that language? Who lived in this space and, that, and, the, and for what reasons? What were they hiding from? And unraveling that thread, those very few specifics led to the conflicts that led to the empire, to the exercise now of, okay, but what's the empire itself like? All because I stumbled upon a tin of biscuits that the Coden who comes to Adam's house in the first place still continues to eat centuries later. It's a weird friggin' thing that these biscuits are still edible and still there in an unnerving supply. It became a strange connector from the past to the present that also serves in a, as a narrative vehicle to tie things together. The stuff was in one place. It was distributed from that place for these reasons and so on. So you can, you can imagine people living effectively post-Empire in old fallout shelters of the like, living on rations that might have been there for ages before. And just taking whatever bits of the culture from the empire and where they were now and surviving until life is better again on the surface or elsewhere. They can be where they want to instead of where they have to. How much of that belongs in the book, in a book? I would say not a lot or no more than enough, right? You have to have enough threads in the early beginning pieces like Nikolai might show up and have on his motorcycle equivalent some tins of these biscuits or trade for them as a reward for his judgment that day. And that's just a weird thing. But then you can layer on from that one particular weird thing, other elements and context and build up to the Imperium, build up to Adam going to one of those villages where folks used to be raised, talking to a raised, talking to a codem there, etc. It's a lot of work. It can definitely seem like a lot of work to take these few threads and tease out from there. But I think as we've experienced on the show, and as I've told Ken before, a few hours on this stuff, is months of result from was it episode eight where we talked about that strange tree that everyone lived in right yeah that was a long time ago now that that location is the majority of where the second book will take place it just it became that dominant a space where everything where things focus or things are pivotal and what what do we dex what do we use to summon ken nowadays think get him talking about dune or sarn has been very effective okay <laughs> Just villainy in general, villainy, villainy by tangent. Here we go. I'm a big believer in the iron law of oligarchy, which is a useful thing that I've now happened on in my search. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh, goodness. All systems eventually can converge on a certain amount of very important people being in charge of them, whatever they nominally are, is basically the iron law of oligarchy. I feel, I, I feel sorely tempted to send you Jesse Ventura's banned conspiracy theory episode. No, thank you. Because <laughs> that's... <laughs> More or less the thing he tries to ignore. It's 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 a I think to Dex's point, it's it's a great feat of bending your own sense of reality to ignore the thing in front of your face. <sighs> That's neither here nor there. I, I want to thank both of you for joining me today. I know we went on probably much longer than planned here. No, this is about what I expected. Yeah, because <laughs> right around you, you start off with the beginning, and as you start to unravel the tiny wimey balls, it was as it were. So much comes from it. And I don't, I can't tell you how much of this I would use in the book itself. Although I know the hats are going in. Well, that's good. The, the, the hats were a good detail. Credit, full credit there. I think to kind of do a, a, a post on this, once you've done one of these possible world exercises, you have to step away from whatever you've extracted from it and no longer be in that state of mind when you come back to it. You've got to listen to it three or four well, days Well, yeah, later. no, you, you got to let it germinate for a while. Even if you're not going to listen to it again, you're not going to have your idea for another hour at least and usually we're on more a scale of days if not weeks yeah so i like i found 
I figured out the thing that I'm not allowed to talk about because Dexter's here. <laughs> Last week, after having run the first session of the game, <laughs> and it's going to matter in the long run. Oh, good. As well as as an example, it's a bad example because I can't elaborate on it. But like, it, it, I literally started running the game, folks, without a fairly important detail having fallen into place, <laughs> and now it has. Did that detail have been the villain? <laughs> no, I, I I had I had a villain in mind already. I can throw out a uh, more uh, less spoilery uh, example. Uh, it's the thing that Ken and I talked about and that uh, that he helped me with. I started my campaign, gosh, what is it now, four years ago. It's, it's a campaign that self-resets. The mechanism by which it does that has not been discovered, so I'm not spoiling any of that. I, I started by laying out all the, the worlds and setting aside uh, a few key worlds that I had a vague idea of uh, how they play into the, the mechanism and the, the overall, the bigger story, the bigger picture that's happening behind all this. But, you know, that was four years ago. Let's say three to four years ago. I don't know exactly when it was. Right. You're not the Dex of then. Your mind has gone different places since. It has. And uh, since then. No, I've wait, wait. Hold in- on. We have to say it. And his players have contributed to the narrative. And the players have contributed to the narrative, yes. And, you know, I've filled in more details about some of the the background stuff, about the alien-like entities that are involved in all this plot. I've filled in a lot of detail that I hadn't initially about what their philosophy is and why they're doing the things that they're doing, um, if they even realize they're doing the things that they're doing. So I've added a lot of detail since I first set these worlds out, and that was... Uh, this run of the campaign has actually gotten to one of those worlds. And now I'm like, okay, what were my notes from four years ago when I set this all aside? What did I write then? What <laughs> did I have in mind? And I, I'm looking at effectively a template. A blank template is all I left myself. <laughs> I didn't put anything in except a name. I, I remember the video games and other media references that I used because I've, I've constantly, you know, kind of referred back to them, but I didn't have anything else. And what I had initially, what I remember of that initial concept has evolved from player contributions and from me further defining things to, to interact with the players. And so I called Ken up, um, well, I texted him, you know, we, we got on the call. Ultimately we were not moving fast enough by text. No, no, we were not. We were not. (laughs) And we started talking about that. And that is the ultimate I'm recapping for myself. Yeah. I'm revisiting these thoughts I had and re-exploring them. And now I need to know what direction they go because it's become relevant. There are sometimes threads you lay down that you won't know the fruition to until you come at them from the other end. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and sometimes it is a matter of taking it from both sides and meeting in the middle or seeing what else intersects. And well, I mean, it, it sounded sarcastic, but like in role-playing games, particularly, you, you don't really find out where things are going until the players get anywhere near it. Boris, we once jokingly said to Ken, which one of those is the green indicator and which one of those is the red? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I answered that with a yeah, type, no, type you, of noise. You were, you were very mad. <laughs> you had laid out all of these potential oh, no. for us. And we wanted him to end on the Well, I was frustrated that you just went and asked me the question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the, from what I've learned, both playing in these games and running them too, 
And again, I come from a school of thought with characters where they are themselves people. So you have to give them that space and time and memory to live in. I, I recognize not all of us who write. Nah, like just that. shoot from the hip when you answer questions about your character's background and then write them down so you don't contradict them later. Or when you do contradict them later, make some more stuff up. <laughs> uh, you laugh, but uh, happened. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I absolutely believe it. I come from a school of thought where I want more of a foundational background. I want to know more foundational background about my character because I'm going to base those decisions on what I think shaped them through life. I mean, ideally you don't start with a totally blank slate because it's very hard to improvise with nothing, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. But so the setup for the game that Jared was talking about earlier, where we moved to a different system to follow up his magic school game. At some point during the character generation session, I had said, uh, he's not eligible because he is married. And then later I explained that my character was not married. And every, and Jared, I think it was, or Dave pounced on me with, no, no, he's married. You said so in the character generation episode. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was a beat. And then I went, okay, so it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we found out that the character was uh, whatever the equivalent species of separated and or divorced is when it applies to creatures that are of literal mythological significance. Conscious uncoupling. Uh, it might have been, yeah. Uh, he definitely had a wife who was his wife and that was you know, assigned to him by cosmic order and this, that, or the other. But they didn't get along and he hadn't seen her in a while. <laughs> but I think it's, it's a great example, both of the ones both of you said here, of how as much as you can lay out there, whether you like to have everything down or whether you're just as you did with that particular character, can mostly going by the seat of your parents. I made up some rules. Yeah. You have you need to have enough for you, enough truths for you of the character. And then inevitably you will find the rest as they intersect with other characters, their needs, wants, and desires with the way the world is or is going. Which is why we do these exercises of possible worlds or what our world itself could be. I like. mean, I, I had built out that guy's background substantially just by riffing, right? I started with a with a core concept of I want to play a giant. And then I read what that meant in Fellowship, and then that got refined to Babylonian space giant. And then from there, we had to explain what that meant within the world, which meant that he was a functionary for for a god somewhere, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Pulling, pulling back the curtain fully, that index, because you weren't here for this, the initial premise Dave and I had come up with was to do a series of these games where we had a theme of alien invasion that we all could riff on. Ken, I think you did through the, through the airwaves. Yeah. That they were, and they had to use some means of communication to manipulate during the invasion. Right. So Ken did a kind of a noirish alien invasion during the airwaves. Uh, strictly speaking, I I, you, I badly abused a mid Atlantic ac accent throughout Dave's game. That's right. <laughs> yours was the yours was Gumshoe. No, uh, the other one. But it, the the bottom line is, uh, I badly abused the mid Atlantic accent running a film noir detective. And, and because his pitch didn't really have anything to do with film noir detectives, but I had committed to, I'm going to run a character who would make perfect sense in a different context than this game every time. David said it during that time anyway. And he said it in the right era for a film noir detective, but there really shouldn't have been one involved. It didn't make any sense. And I looked at Alien Invasion and said, well, foreign concepts are alien. And I brought death to a world that had none. And the characters stumbled over themselves trying to serve death best because she was the princess. Right. And so what I did was, of course, make an immortal giant from beyond space and time, because that doesn't make any sense in that context either. <laughs> no, but you, you you worked as a character and also served to wreck any situation you were in. So things had to keep changing. 
Right. The, the best part of that was that it let us completely offload almost 90% of any combat that could occur throughout the game, which Fellowship is bad at, on some kind of narration of my, you know, space giant fighting something. Fighting giant dragons or other horrors, yeah. It was, it was kind of hysterical. <laughs> the, the, the joy and the challenge of these exercises, whether it's for a game, whether it's for writing a book, film, screenplay, video game, etc., when you take what we've been working on today, when you take these components, let's call them, and put them together, when you take the Legos and assemble, it's never going to quite have the shape you thought, you, you thought it would. And to Dex's point, that's partly because as you're putting it together, it will evolve because it's not being put together in a void. Other people in your game have hats too. Those jerks. Well, obviously they're not the villain because their hats aren't as good. They, they've added a column to the Lego, and now it's uh, an eight block, eight by two instead of six by two. <laughs> Why are we back on Legos? <laughs> it's, it's all. I don't mind. I'm just. I'm not sure how we got there. It's all it's, conceptually Legos anyway. It's actually a great analogy for building. And and through the original Caltrops. Stop so. it! That was supposed to be a fun joke. Nope, no fun joke nope. from you. Only don't villains. you turn it into something meaningful. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna remove all subtext you provided. Ah, sorry, Ken. We are turning you into the villain. Ah. Turning? <laughs> well, we're we're revealing you as a villain. Like just because you're used to me trying to play, if not one of the good guys per se, you know, a ordinary character in your games doesn't mean that there's not a narrative function I usually fulfill. I got to tell you. Oh, I've recognized that. I, I've come to understand that from these from these discussions. The joy, I think, of inviting other people into these exercises is that you're no longer stuck with what's in your own head. It helps a lot, all joking aside. I often ask people who have nothing to do with a game to tell me what they think would happen in a situation. And sometimes it's really good stuff. I've got a buddy I'll, go, I'll be going to play board games with in a couple hours who just refuses to do anything that even remotely looks like a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. He's not into it. And so occasionally I'll bring Mike a problem and I'll frame the problem and he'll tell me what he thinks would happen. And sometimes it's really helpful. So I think probably the the last benefit from this exercise is one, it's less terrifying than mucking around in the thing you were trying to make. Whatever you were trying to make is still there. It's safe. If you blew up the world or set it on fire. You can be like, I didn't like that idea. You blew up that version of the world. Yours is mm-hmm. still fine. The others, through doing this exercise with other people, you start to put together, I think, something every creative or storyteller needs, a group of voices they can trust. We, we like to envision creatives as the Amadeus archetype of or Mozart madly composing in the corner because it's what you see in pop culture all the time. But the reality is it's as collaborative as anything else. Even Mozart had friends. Well, actually, Mozart might not have had friends. He was sort of legendarily disagreeable. <laughs> Even Mozart experienced, you know, a conversation with other human beings frequently <laughs> while trying to get them into bed. But still. God, that must have been weird bed talk. Mozart was by, like, every account, a real weird dude. So, yeah, probably. It, it gives you the opportunity to ask really stupid questions. Right. Like Beethoven and Bach were pretty regular guys until Beethoven went deaf. Then he got kind of crazy. But like Mozart was apparently a really weird dude. Kind of mildly tangential. But I was watching Top Chef the other day and one of the contestants cannot smell or taste. And I kind of sat there going, okay, let's see how this goes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> you're working on purely theoretical constructs that you're probably familiar with. It's not that he never could smell or taste. He just lost it. So, you know, what is this result in? And part of it turned into a team exercise where you had to have everyone taste. It's a competition. I don't know how far that'll get them. But it's a similar thing where you cannot always feel all the things that you're working with. So give other people the silly putty to play with. Right. And sometimes somebody will have a really helpful thought you didn't have. 
particularly if it's something like what I've been working on, which is I've been through so many stages of and evolutions of as it's reaching the, I'm on chapter 30 now, or 31 of like 33. So I finished the very big arc that will be most of book three. And I'm beginning to start the next chapter now, which is again, a moment of, well, shit, they're in a new town and I don't know what the town is. I don't really want to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> what things do I know that I can pull from here? Uh, it's, that's tough stuff. And eventually, after a couple hours, I was able to start pulling threads together and go, right, well, I know all these things are, and I know where it is, so what would be, even if they're only here for a chapter? What's this part of the world that's always been here like, even though the characters aren't going to be in it for long? And that's how you give that place life, and their moment in it a real heart. The first time I wrote that scene to kind of cap this conversation, it was mostly two characters sitting on the top of a building talking until I realized... It's it's a place near the desert. They're going to have a night market because it's cooler. They're going to be stationed because they're being penalized for behavior they got up to earlier. So if they're stationed in the market, people are all around. There's a whole life of the town around them. And yeah, there's going to be a stray dog throwing a ball at them to get attention because dogs do that. Let's just have the dog there and see what happens to the conversation accordingly. And it changed the whole nature of the scene, even though the conversation was mostly the same. The rest of the world demanded its space on the page and gave greater depth accordingly, and allowed there to be subtext, because now two characters didn't have to fill all of that space with just themselves. They could see how other people react to them. They could react to other folks. The dog could undercut things or interrupt without having them be fully said. It became so much easier to write. Like with Legos, if you've only got two shapes, there's only so much you can do. I think on that note, though, we're going to wrap up because I am toast. Thank you and Ken for joining us me today. Is there anything online that you would want folks to follow? Everything online that I, I would care about plugging is here. I, I will say that with Epic Games having bought Bandcamp, uh, get what you're after while it's still there, folks, because I don't have a whole lot of confidence they won't mismanage the, product, the product. Wow, that's a... Man, <laughs> I have too much to say there that I can't say. It's just fair warning to people who might have been interested in Bandcamp as a place to get music that isn't, you know, pop. I'll plug my stream if that's okay. Good. Yep. I uh, I stream my campaign uh, as well as another campaign in which I'm just a player uh, under another GM. I'm now streaming on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. and Monday evenings around about 6:30. Uh, there's the, a family and kids involved, so the timing isn't the the most important thing in the world. But all of that occurs on Twitch.tv slash Cubicle Dexter. And of course, as always, you can find us at anchor.com slash tigers. That's with a Y. We now have the ability for you to leave voice messages, so please do. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback, answer your questions on storytelling and media of all kind. And we will soon be sharing a whole host of episodes from Outer Worlds over the next few months that most of you have never heard before. And I think on a couple of them, expanding those narratives, Wander Home for One, Ken, you and I will have never going home started at some point so we'll talk uh about that. yeah 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 that's that's another one we should discuss but not right now maybe that's a later thing uh the, the, dave is joining us as a co-host and, and and bringing stuff in so we now have a much healthier buffer than we did before that's good which makes life a little easier to plan because i, I have an idea for that but i probably shouldn't tell you where dex might hear it either <laughs> I'm sorry, Dex. Ken just wants to be the villain. I'm trying to preserve some surprise if you are involved in that and happen to be there when I spring this one on people because it's happening. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. I'll go ahead and uh, take my leave and let you two conspire. 
like villains. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.